Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Reading from the English Standard Version, these are God's words. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp. Excuse me. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. May the Lord add a blessing to the readers, hearers, and doers of his holy and errant and infallible word. You may be seated. Now, during the holiday season, there was this uh, young man little boy who was hanging with his family, and he had a chance to witness, while he was hanging with his family, four generations gathered around the table for Christmas dinner. His mother was present, his grandmother was present, and even his great-grandmother. They were all there. And so as they were preparing for Christmas dinner, the young man smelled this unbelievably delicious smell coming from the kitchen, and he decided to go and check it out, and it happened to be his mother's world-famous honey-baked ham, one of his favorite dishes. He had been waiting all year for it. One thing stood out to him, however, as he was looking at the ham or smelling the ham, really, but he started looking at it, and he noticed that something he had never noticed before, which was, which was up until this point, um, he had never noticed that both ends of the ham were sliced off. And so he figured he would just ask his mom, why was that? And he did. Hey, mom, you know, why did you cut off both ends of the ham like that. His mom, obviously a master of honey-baked hams, had never really thought about it. She said, well, that's just the way, to tell you the truth, I never really thought about it, but my mom always did it, so never stopped to ask her. So he went and said, well, hey, grandma's here. I'll just go ask grandma. So he went and talked to grandma and said, hey, grandma, you know, mom said that you just taught her how to make this delicious ham and you would always cut both ends off. Why do you do it? And grandma said, well, baby, to be honest with you, to tell you the truth, I've never really thought about it. And I always saw my mom do it, so I just taught your mama to do the same thing. So he said, okay, well, good thing great-grandmama's here because I could just go and ask great-grandmama. And so he does. He goes to great-grandmama and he says, hey, maybe we can solve a mystery today, great-grandmama. Why did you cut both ends of the ham off before you cooked it? His great-grandmama looked at him. She sat up in her chair, rubbed her chin as she contemplated, and she said, well, baby, I don't really know why your crazy mama and grandmama do it, but I did it because back then I only had a roasting pan that was this big, <laughs> and I had to figure out some kind of way to get the ham in there. Now, many of you have probably already heard that story, but the point of the story is relevant for us this morning. If you don't revisit your reasons for doing something, every once in a while, you eventually lose the reason for doing it. 
and you begin to waste time and energy, and in the case of grandmama and great-grandmama and even mama, meat and good meat, you begin to lose going through the motions. And it's for this reason that we're going to launch into this new series for the next several weeks. We'll spend probably six to seven weeks or so, a couple of months, in this series that we're calling DNA because we're going to biblically walk through the mission and the values of our church. It's, it's something that we've done twice before. We did it when we first launched back in April 2017. We did it again um, roughly in, I believe it was 2019, but it's been, it's been a minute since we've talked about it. And so I want to come back and revisit this just to ensure that we aren't going through the motions as a church. And so today we begin with our mission. And that mission is, you see it even in, in some places in the room, you've seen it on literature. I mean, if you pick up one of our visitor cards you'll, or connect cards, you'll see it on that. We exist to shine the light of Christ in our city through the transformed lives of his people. This text, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16, is where that mission is rooted, which is why we are fixing our attention on it this morning. Now, I want to talk about a couple of things. I want to talk about in this text that we're reading, who is the you in this text and who is the world and the earth in this text? I want to talk about what does it mean to actually be salt and light? And then I want to talk about how are we to live if we are, in fact, salt and light. Who is the you? What does it mean to be salt and light? And how are we to live if we are, in fact, salt and light? So let's start with the, just the definition of you. Who is the you? Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. And then he goes on and he says, you are the light of the world. In discussing this text, it is important that we clearly define the who's in this text. Because when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, and when he says, you are the light of the world, he is not talking about everyone in that you. Everyone is not the you. Last week, we referenced, in fact, that the, the, the fact, rather, that Matthew chapter 5 through, or cha through chapter 7 is one single sermon. Remember, we talked about the Sermon on the Mount, and in Luke, the Sermon on the Plain. And we talked about the Sermon on the Mount from chapter 5 to chapter 7 is, in fact, one audience. And we are told who that audience is in the last part of Matthew chapter 4, in the first part of Matthew chapter 5. So beginning in chapter 4, verse 23 through 25, you can scroll up a little bit or just flip a page if you got your Bibles. It says, he went through all, throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's 4 and 23. And healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics. And he healed them and great crowds followed him from Galilee to, Decap to Deca uh, Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. The audience is crowds of people who are hearing all about what Jesus is doing. His teaching, his preaching, his healing, his deliverance of all manner of diseases and demonic oppression and, and, and possession. And this crowd is saying to itself, I want to learn more about this guy. And they begin to follow him everywhere. But Jesus, as they are following him, decides to go up on a mountain. Thus, we get the Sermon on the Mount. 
And he begins to preach. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 2 captures that for us. Verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He went up on the mountain, seeing the crowds. And when he sat down, the disciples came up to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying. So just that quick, we now have two distinctive audiences. The first audience, which we talked about in chapter 4, is the audience that is craving what they've seen Jesus giving out. But they are in need of so much more than that, and they don't realize it yet. But the second audience is the disciples, the followers of Jesus that realize already their need, that they realize that Jesus has everything that they need, and they're on board, and they're walking with him. And so this large crowd has come, and they're following him. Jesus has gone up on the mountain, and then the disciples come in a little closer, and he begins to teach them directly in this moment. So picture this scene of Jesus' sermon. Jesus is sitting elevated on the mountain with his disciples very close by, but just a little lower on the, on the mountain as he instructs them is the large crowds a little further back, possibly listening in on these teachings as they are being given. So when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, he has in mind in that you, the disciples that he is now teaching. And by extension, every single disciple that is to come, those that are following him. In addition, when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, he has in, uh, in mind those words or in the words, word and earth, all or world and earth, all the people that surround him and his disciples and that will surround all the disciples that are to come. He has in mind those that may be looking in on what's happening with need and with curiosity. Those are the who's of the text. Light, salt, immediate disciples. Earth, world, those that are looking in and that are on the outside but looking in. So here we are with our very first challenge. Which group are you a part of? Salt and light, earth and world. Salt and light are those who are followers and disciples of Jesus. The world and the earth are people who, who's, who make up everyone else. The self-righteous, possibly, who believe that they can save themselves. The unbeliever, who doesn't believe in any of this stuff. The seeker, who sees in Jesus something special, but is still trying to figure it out. That's world and earth. Before you can even begin to think about being sought in life, you have to ask yourself simply, am I following Jesus? Because that's what makes you sought in light. Everyone isn't sought in light. Disciples and followers of Jesus are sought in light. Well, how do I begin to follow Jesus? Someone may ask. Repentance and belief. Acts chapter 2, verse 28, when, G when Peter preached his gospel sermon, they said, Peter, what shall we do? And Peter responded, repent, turn, turn from your way, turn to God's way, and be baptized as an evidence of faith. I am now trusting in God. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit that is the seal of of salvation. 
Romans chapter 10, verse 9, believe, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 13, everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is what is necessary to become salt and light. City Light holds this tension in our mission. We exist to shine the light of Christ in our city through the transformed lives of his people. We don't believe you can shine the light of Christ until you are actually transformed by Christ. Following, discipling, or being discipled by Christ. We cannot adequately shine the light of Christ unless we are first in Christ. You see, saints of God, we are or we receive our saltiness from Christ. We receive our light from Christ. So let's define salt and let's define light. What does it mean to be salt? What does it mean to be light? Well, one thing for sure that both salt and light have in common, which I believe Jesus is bringing to the table here as he uses both of these metaphors to make his point, is that while they may have different roles and different functions, narrowly speaking, they both have a more common general function, and that is this. Both of them can aid in the sustainment of life. Salt and light can aid in sustaining life, bringing life. So in some shape, form, or fashion, the Lord is calling us to sustain and bring life to the people in the world around us, those looking in. Those on the outside, he's calling us to bring life to those people. That is the very heart of City Light. Again, what is the mission? We exist to shine the light of Christ in our city, not just to the saints, but to everybody around us looking in through the transformed lives, through those that have been bought by Christ and saved through Christ, through the transformed lives of his people. We exist to give life to the city through the life that we've received in Christ. That's the mission. Let's start with salt. He says, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In antiquity, the ancient times, salt was often used to establish promises, and covenants, legally binding agreements. I've even been to some weddings where there's salt covenants. Has anyone been to a wedding like that? Maybe, nobody, nobody? Okay, 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 all right, praise God. Maybe I was just at a very strange wedding, it looks like. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> I was getting worried, okay. But in the Old Testament, meat offerings were first seasoned with salt most likely due to its flavoring and its preserving capabilities. Before refrigeration, salt would keep meat from going bad quickly. Jesus almost certainly has this in mind when he declares that we are the salt of the earth. It's a flavorer. It's a preserver of life. The world needs a people who will aid in preserving that which is good and right 
in the world and seasoning and flavoring the world with the wisdom of God. As followers and disciples of Jesus, that's where we come in, preserving and seasoning and flavoring the world around us. One of our functions as a people of God is to preserve, to push back the evil influences of this world with Christ-inspired, spirit-filled grace, mercy, and love. But also all throughout history, while people typically only think about the negative ways that the church has impacted society, the truth is that the church, the church has impacted society in countless positive ways. The church has been sought. The prominence of charity and love and, 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 and sacrifice that we see throughout history is very much led by Christians. From starting of hospitals to orphanages to other sources of community support, that has been in many ways Christian movement, salt, preservation. Christians have, um, when you think about the many of the historically elite schools and historically elite colleges in the world, many of them were started by Christians because of their major influence on the science and their major influence on the arts, preserving and flavoring the world. The church has always been called to be a preserver and a flavorer. Of the world. And yes, even today we are called both collectively as local churches and as universal church, but also individually to the same call to be a flavorer and a preserver. What preserving influence are you having on the lives around you right now? Is your presence in the life of others serving them and preserving that which is good and right? and pushing back that which is evil and destructive? Or is it spoiling the people around you? As a disciple and follower of Jesus, are you living like salt? Notice something else about Jesus' call to be salt. If salt has lost its taste, he says, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything. In other words, we cease to be useful when we are no longer preserving and flavoring the world around us. If we are taking on the same flavorless habits and opinions of the world around us, we cease being useful to the world in need of gospel flavoring and preservation. We were never called to just run around and digest whatever thought or attitude and doctrine that popular culture is selling us. We were called to allow Scripture and the Spirit to lead us to be a completely, entirely different type of people. But when we allow the culture around us to shape us, we lose our, our saltiness. It doesn't matter what side that shaping is coming from, left, right. It doesn't matter, progressive, conservative, liberal. It does not matter if, if, that's, if that flavoring is not coming from the word in the spirit, it is taking our saltiness from us. You know, paprika is a... Very interesting seasoning. It has a certain look to it. You can put a lot on it. You can put a lot of it on something. You know, you go to the store and you can see like a piece of chicken with like a lot of paprika or something on it. And you'll fool yourself into thinking that it's ready to go. It's really seasoned. 
And if you just put a whole lot of paprika on something, and you just put it in the oven, and you just take it out, and you start eating it, it's not ready to go. Let me just tell you that. It is not ready to go. It's not, there's not a whole lot to paprika. You can put a whole lot of it on something, but still not really have much of a taste unless it's coupled with salt. And I often feel like that's how Christians are operating. We are being seasoned by the world. Social media, talk shows, political commentary, but very little Bible, very little prayer, and very little spirit. So we have lots and lots and lots of paprika on us, and we appear to be very, very, very seasoned. We got a lot of opinions on a lot of things, and yet in actuality, there is nothing there to preserve the world around us. It's a seasoning with no saltiness. Here's another interesting thought about, about this idea of saltiness. Jesus mentions our ability to lose our saltiness, but pure salt doesn't lose its saltiness. So what could Jesus be referring to? Well, many theologians have many different opinions on this, but many of them believe that Jesus is possibly alluding to the type of salted substances that you would find around the ancient lands in which he was reared in and raised. There would be rock formations that contain deposits of sodium chloride, which is the, you know, obviously the potency of salt. And meat and fish would be packed into the rocks to preserve the, the meat and the fish. They would be literally packed into those rocks. But after a period of time, the salt in that rock would leach out, so to speak. And the rock would be no longer good for anything but to be thrown out. In other words, it would become diluted, more rock than salt. You tracking with that? So what is undebatable, I don't know what Jesus may be referring to, but what is undebatable here is that Jesus appears to be referring to salt that is not pure salt, but is salt that has been diluted. And the more it is diluted, the less serviceable it becomes. Saints of God, be on guard to not become so inundated with the opinions and the thoughts and the attitudes of the world around us that we cease to be a preserving and seasoning influence to the world around us. Be careful not to become deluded. In fact, what's interesting about this salt metaphor is that it actually could possibly be connected to wisdom. For, but for one reason, salt was traditionally in many, in many, in many um, um, teaching, uh, teaching circles and, 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 and scholarly circles, rabbi circles, it was connected to wisdom. You even see some of that hinted at in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, where it says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Many believe that Paul is pointing to this ideal of our speech being not only gracious, but our speech being filled with wisdom. And then here's another reason why. 
When Jesus talks about this ideal of saltiness, losing saltiness, it's actually a Greek term. The phrase is a Greek term that is referring to turning towards foolishness. And so it's this idea that we can lose saltiness by what? By instead of turning to the wisdom of God and being filled up and inundated by the wisdom of God, we turn to the foolishness of the culture, being filled up and inundated by the foolishness of the culture, thus losing our saltiness, losing our preserving, flavoring power. Does this strike a nerve with any of you right now? When you canvas or when you look at the, 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 the current moment in the local church in America and you look at all of our opinions being shaped and molded and fueled by opinions on the outside rather than being fueled by the word of God, empowered by the spirit of God and covered in prayer. Is it no shock when we lose our saltiness? This is what it means to be salt. What does it mean to be light? He says, you are the light of the world. Verse 14, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. As we think about this in terms of what does it mean to be light, we're going to actually talk a lot about what does it mean to live like light and live like salt, which is my third point. First thing is that light is meant to be seen. Light is meant to be seen. He says you can't, uh, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You are the light of the world. People don't light lamps and then put baskets on top of them, but they put them on stands so that they can serve the whole house by giving light to the house. Light is meant to be seen and used in the darkness. In fact, light has its greatest value in the midst of darkness. How often do you turn on a flashlight in a room full of bright recessed lighting? Anybody going to turn flashlights on in those rooms? Typically, you don't. Where, is, where, where do you turn on lights? In dark places. Saints of God, we were never created to simply be amongst each other exclusively. Yes, we, are, we, find, we find strength in our community. We find fellowship in our community. We find rest in our community. One of, my, uh, one of our dear sisters, uh, when, we were, when we were talking earlier this week, said, hey, you know, man, I've been out of town, but, you know, most of the time I'm, you know, I get a little depressed even thinking about having to come back home. But, man, my soul is nourished as I think about coming back home because I get a chance to come back to City Light. And that's what we're supposed to be as a community where we are refreshed and nourished and encouraged. We, we are encouraging to one another. We find fuel. But we are not meant to be exclusively together. We're meant to be light in darkness, light in dark places. And so one thing we know about light is that light is meant to be shining in spaces where darkness exists. But here's another thing. Notice that the text, in this text, light shining parallels good works. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory 
to the Father in heaven. So when we shine light, we are shining it by doing good. We are shining it by doing good works, by pouring out our lives with grace and mercy and love for the sake of another. But not just any good. You see, anybody can do good. But Christian good has a certain end. Let your light so shine so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so light shining is terminating on the glory of God and not just your glory. So it's not just any good work or it's not just any good. Good works in Christ is good works that are terminating on the glory of God, that are pointing to the glory of God. You see, while light is intended to be seen, it was never intended to be seen for your glory or for my glory or for even our glory. In fact, in this very same sermon, Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord calls out works done for the good of our own glory. He says in Matthew chapter 6 verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. He says the same thing about fasting in verse 18. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward. You. Our aim and our goal in our shining, in our working, our good works and putting forth good works is not that they would terminate on our glory, but that they would terminate on God's glory, that they would serve in making Jesus known to direct glory back to him. So we are not just lights that the Lord uses to light the world around us, but we are also spotlights that he uses to point the attention of the world to him. Because good works are intended to point back to God, they must also reflect the character of God. So since Jesus came in grace and truth, we come bringing good works in the same way. Truth saturated in grace. Take, for example, Matthew chapter 5. Again, verse 43, same sermon. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So 
good works is not just confined to doing good to those who do good to you. Good works, true good works, extends to those who are in fact in direct opposition to you. Because verse 45 says that it is then that you are actually following in the footsteps of your father and walking as sons of God. It's then. Not just when you're doing good to those that do good towards you, but when you're doing good to those who are opposing you. That is the very fabric and nature and heart of good works. Be cautious of the temptation, saints, to justify darkness through the language of light. In other words, justifying, say, sexual immorality in the language of love. Justifying divisive and bitter and dishonest and foolish speech in the language of contending earnestly for the faith. Justifying a lack of pursuit of personal holiness in the language of living in grace. You see, the world has taught us that making love doesn't have to be connected to any sense of God-ordained covenant between husband and wife alone. And that is not what God has said. You, you understand what I'm saying? You could actually take a good thing and make it a bad thing. The world has taught us that when we fight for truth, it doesn't matter how low we stoop or how dishonest we represent our opponent's positions. But this is not the way of Jesus. The world has taught us that since we are all human and prone to error, we should just all lighten up on how high we set our personal morality and not even chase it, not even pursue it. This is not the way of Jesus. And so here's what I'm saying. I'm saying in the midst of good works, they must terminate on God and they must reflect God's character. You can be doing things that in their purity are good, but you can twist them into bad things. Are you, are you tracking with that? So all of this typically stems from the darkness doing more influencing of the light. See, when the darkness has more influence of the light, then we take low, we take low ways to share our truth. Does that make sense? We cut people off. We treat them, we treat them like, you know, we treat them like the dirt, dirt, the dirt on the ground. But we say, hey, we're contending for truth while we're doing that. What, what has happened? That's not light having the biggest influence. That's darkness having the biggest influence to the point where it's even shaping the kind of light that we project. Here's something else to think about as you process these good works. We don't do good works to be light. We do good works because we are light. The good works are flowing from our identity they're not flowing to our identity. Here's what I mean by that. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it tells us, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were created for good works. Not doing good works, to be created in Christ, created in Christ for good works. The identity precedes the activity. Do you understand? You're not working to become light. You're not working to become salt. 
Because you are light and because you are salt, you are producing the type of works and you are pursuing to produce the type of works that reflect the character of God and terminate on the glory of God. Does that, does that make sense? So don't work to earn salt, the title of salt. Don't work to earn the title of light. No, out of being called light, out of being created as light, and out of being created as salt, go and work the works that God has prepared for you beforehand. You know, um, as I think about this, because most of the time, as we know, these things aren't just things that we naturally do. Even, you know, even when you think about good that we do, it's oftentimes what shaped and so much of the darkness that we just described. And so as we process this ideal of good works and shining and being salty, how in fact do we do that? And as I process that, I think about the fact that my mom has for the last several years uh, given me um, for Christmas and my birthday Home Depot gift cards because she has realized that probably one of the most loving things she can do is continue to stack me with opportunities to go to Home Depot and shop. And so she gave me Home Depot gift cards, again, for Christmas and birthday, and I've been thinking about how am I to spend these gift cards. And one of the things I thought about is that I want to actually get some solar lighting around the house. But as I began to process getting this solar lighting, I realized that I have an issue. So many of the areas that I need these lights to be placed don't have good, they got too much shade. And they aren't in a position to receive light from the sun. And so in order for me to actually use these lights, in order for them to be effective, they have to be properly positioned to receive light from the sun. All solar lights require a source of energy in order to shine. They are dependent on this source of energy to shine. And this source of energy is, the, is what is this spectacular marvel that we have in the universe that's called the sun. And that sun shines. It isn't plugged into anything. It casts light into the darkness from its own energy. And it provides energy for all the other lights to pull from in order for them to be powered as well. And if those lights aren't positioned to receive light from the sun, they will not shine. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Matthew chapter 5, he says, you are the light of the world. John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. What does that mean, Jesus? Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, listen, but will have the light of life. In other words, whoever's positioned to receive light from me will shine. 
Jesus, the Son of God, is the self-sufficient, light-casting Son that powers us to be light. Everything that we've discussed and described has to begin and terminate in him. It has to begin in him. It has to end in him. We are only the light of the world because he is. And we live in him. And when we try to shine outside of him, our illumination fades. We are only found in him. We are only found shining when we are found in him. So you're saying, well, how do I shine? How do I produce the type of good works that will terminate on the glory of God and that will reflect the character of God? You do that by doing what? Staying positioned in front of the light. Staying positioned in front of the sun. Not allowing yourself to get too shady. Being caught up in the darkness around you. Being absorbed and sucked into the darkness around you. Being deluded of your saltiness. Staying in your words. Staying prayerful. Staying, stay, staying repentant because you're going to fall. Of course we're going to fall. But stay with coming back instead of running away and coming back to the throne of grace. And continuing to just stay there. That's where you receive light to shine. It's when you run and try to shine on your own that your light flickers. And so how do we do this? We do this by staying connected to the one who shines the brightest, the one who came perfectly, lived a perfect life, died a death that we deserve, rose from the grave with all power and all authority in his hand and makes eternal intercession for us. The one who shines the brightest gives us light in order that we might be light. And so stay connected to the light. And the more connected you are, the more indeed you will shine. Let's pray. God, we love you so much and we give you all the thanks and praise and glory and honor.